Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, what's the most disappointing thing that's ever happened to you? God, I was going to be really mean and say recording this. Starting a podcast with me. (laughs) The most disappointing thing to ever happen to me is that you're disappointed with me. Anyway, I ask (laughs) because this episode we'll be talking about Little Women, Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's classic novel. But first, Anna, what have you been watching? again have been shamed for my choice in advance of even recording it (laughs) but I'm continuing with my witch binge. Which witch is it this time? (laughs) It's the lesser known Hammer film from 1966 called The Witches or also known as The Devil's Own Let me pass, I've got to warn the police It's my spell set, he's dead And it's essentially almost exactly parallels The Wicker Man, but it came out a few years before that. It stars Joan Fontaine. Starring Joan Fontaine as the head teacher. As this sort of erudite but prim head teacher. Target of the witch's cunning in two continents. Who goes into a very small, very cute British town and very soon discovers that things are not as they seem. Witchcraft? Mm. Somebody having a little dabble? Yes, I would think so. It's a sex thing deep down, of course. Mostly women go in for it. It's very slow burn. There's not that much kind of horror gore, not that much kind of hammer activity as we would expect from kind of 1960s hammer horror films. But it's weirdly conservative in many ways. It plays around with the idea of who witches are and what they're ultimately after and kind of knowledge as the ultimate source of power in many regards. But at the same time, it then kind of takes quite a conservative turn. And I don't want to say too much about it, but it's, you know, from the 60s. It's available everywhere. I feel like heading into Christmas, we're both getting lazy. Like you've fallen back on your wheelhouse, which is witches. And inevitably, I'm going to talk about video games, <laughs> is my discovery. <laughs> so there's this trend for games at the moment called clockwork games. And clockwork games are games that are on a time loop. So you're the player character but you have a set amount of time before the whole game resets itself and all the characters and all the settings go back to how they started at the beginning. Two particular games we've been playing at the moment. One is a murder mystery called The Sexy Brutal. The other is a space exploration thing called The Outer Wilds. And both of these games have that setting that after about 20 minutes or so, in the case of The Outer Wilds, the uh, universe explodes. 
In the case of the sexy brutale, you faint and the clock winds back to midday at the start of the murder mystery and you start trying to solve these murders all over again. Where do you think that trend comes from? Do you find it frustrating now? It's not frustrating because it's about building player knowledge each time you play, which is most of video games anyway, but no, mm. most of them aren't that explicit about it. What is interesting about this and what a few people have pointed out is that you're so used to exploring space in video games, but this is a temporal exploration. So you're looking around at time and the world moves without you. And that creates that feeling that the universe just doesn't care about you or tick on regardless. And for some reason, after our Atlantic's chat last week and the whole thing about the sea being, you know, careless and doesn't love me. I'm plugging into culture at the moment that couldn't give a damn about who I am. So there we go. Right off we go at a gallop with Little Women. Greta Gerwig's antic adaptation starts fast and speeds up from there. Join Joe, Amy, Meg and Beth as Gerwig ping-pongs the sisters back and forth between girlhood and maturity. Love, marriage, kids, death, betrayals and heartbreaks zip by. Yet it feels like nothing can touch the indomitable March sisters. Catch them if you can. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sisters. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. I want a home and a family. Don't leave. You'll be bored of him in two years, and we will be interested forever. Anna, the thing that stood out to me about this adaptation is the speed of it, as I've just referenced. What, to you, makes it different to the other versions of Little Women that we've seen? Well, I'd just like to preface that by saying that I think I'm probably the only millennial woman who had never seen the 1994 adaptation of Little Women. With Winona. With Winona and Christian Bale, Claire Danes and Susan Sarandon and a whole other kind of roster of performers. When I imagine myself in, in that life, I can think of only one thing that would make me happy. Um, no, Teddy, Teddy... Don't. Never seen it until a few months ago, um, for which I was profusely shamed by all of my female friends. The thing that really stood out for me was the fact that, well, aside from all of the layers to the narrative and the meta approaches to both the novel, the cultural baggage of previous adaptations, especially the 90s one, and the cultural kind of baggage of some of the actors that she uses, mm -hmm. in particular, Saoirse Ronan and Timothée Chalamet, but it's the fact that it's such an angry film. And I know that's not an adjective that is very often used when talking about Little Women because it's so warm and friendly, Christmassy, you know, tragic. It's such a, despite all of the stuff that happens in it, it is like such a warm, feel-good movie. It's particularly a thing for young women. But I feel like this version allowed the characters, and in particular, Joe and Amy, to be a lot angrier and a lot more expressive and kind of a lot more understanding of the norms under which they must perform and under which they must behave, but also very explicit, a lot more explicit than in previous versions, about their frustration of it. They understand it, they get it, but they're angry about it. And yeah. they're angry that they have to submit to those norms because that's the way the world works. And they're angry because they are limited in their choices and they're limited in what they can do, but they also are kind of burdened by the sense of responsibility, particularly Amy, who I think gets 
given a lot more room to breathe and to be as much of a protagonist or a co-protagonist as Joe March is in this adaptation, they're kind of burdened, but with the responsibility of having to provide. We can leave right now. I'll sell stories. Joe. And you, you should be an actress and you should have a life on the stage. Just because my dreams are different than yours doesn't mean they're unimportant. It's about the burden of responsibility of being a woman in that particular time. But at the same time, you can so extrapolate a lot of the things. And this is, I think, the freshness and the approach that Greta Gerwig brings to it. It's like all of that can also be applied pretty much to the female experience right now. You know, obviously not strictly exactly the same, but the anger and the frustration and the burden of responsibility, I think, that those characters embody and really articulate in the film is so incredibly modern. Yeah, it's definitely in touch with the times. I mean, Louisa May Alcott famously didn't enjoy writing Little Women very much. She called it moral pap for young kids. And what Gerwig has done is she's moved it away from the moral pap and made it much more of a kind of a, a fun but serious tale about, as you say, women's place in the modern world, about women and money, women and ambition, about the freedom that women can expect to have away from men if they can find any freedom at all. And I think Amy is really symbolic of that in that Amy's character in the book and in other adaptations is essentially Olcott sniping at her sister, who she had quite a competitive thing going on with. But in this version, Amy is much more self-aware and she's much more self-possessed. And there's a stark difference between her as a younger woman, as a teenager and as a young woman, in that she almost kind of, almost too on the nose, speaks out her journey and says, there's a key scene with Timothy Chalamet where she's talking about a woman's place at that, that time and how she has to consider how she can find a, a wealthy husband in order to escape her circumstances. And he is a man, he doesn't have that problem. It's a privilege for him that he isn't even aware of. I've always known I would marry Rich. Why should I be ashamed of that? There's nothing to be ashamed of, as long as you love him. Well, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Well, I'm not a poet. I'm just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. I thought that was a really powerful scene because it claims the character back from this idea that she's just slightly bitchy, slightly bitter sister character and she's actually got some self-possession and some um, agency. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. It may not be for you, but it most certainly is for me. I totally agree with you. And it's also really interesting that scene in particular, how it plays into transforming our understanding of the relationship between Joe and Amy because they're notably very competitive. Uh, it's interesting to know that all of the March sisters are really creative in some regards. So Joe is the writer, Amy is the painter, Meg is the actress, and Beth is the musician, right? But it's really only Joe and Amy who have that ambition around their creativity and their art. But Joe is not allowed. She's uncontainable. You know, nobody can restrain her. So she goes off and she's this wild force of nature and she's constantly writing. She goes to New York to become a writer. But Amy then is burdened with the very direct instruction that her marrying well is the thing that will provide for the entirety of her family. So it's now her responsibility to marry off well and not to be, not to allow herself to indulge in developing her talent. And that kind of self-possession and self-awareness, but also the tragedy of someone giving up on their dreams because they know they need to provide. And the only way they can provide is through 
marrying someone that maybe they're not really in love with, but that has wealth in their family is very, very sad. But that's the bit that to me felt fundamentally unmodern and is perhaps the only bit, right? Like, I'm not I'm not saying that women now don't rely on men financially. I think there is obviously like this inequality between the genders and the sexes. So there's going to be still that power system in play. But Amy and Joe's attitude about their talent is really interesting in a modern context and hasn't been changed by Gerwig at all in that Amy is very aware that she wants to be a genius or nothing. If you want to do something creative, you want it to be the best that you can do, but also the best that other people have ever seen. And there's a kind of ego thing playing in that. But that is a fundamentally unmodern way to think. And here's where I get on my old man gripey horse and head off to social media town again, is that social media teaches us or encourages us to believe that our talent is extraordinary and if not our talent ourselves are extraordinary and we can create a facsimile of ourselves that is interesting and strange and weird that we can show to other people it doesn't actually matter if you're talented or not the belief in the talent is the thing and what amy has is a lack of belief in her talent but an awareness that she needs the greatness to be able to do the thing in the first place which is crippling and is particularly crippling in the modern world so i don't know how Gerwig could have done a modern version of that, if you see what I mean, in this setting. Mm -hmm. But it would have been interesting to see, like, someone who has basically a, an average talent at best, but is convinced that they're a genius and keeps, like, you know, throwing exhibitions in that time to kind of show this talent off. I mean, that would be the modern equivalent in my eyes. Well, then how do you compare that to Joe's relationship to her own talent and to her writing? Because she's a lot more of... A grafter, in a yeah. sense, you know, she she's seen and shown to enjoy the process much more than the than the ultimate goal. You know, most notably when she's writing short stories for her sick sister, Beth, she's writing them for something. It's the purpose of making someone else happy and kind of the she's unstoppable. She She's constantly seen writing and writing more and more, just filling up notebooks and then burning them. And then but at the same time, you never really see her worry too much about, oh, is this the great novel? Is this the greatest story? Is this the thing? Oh, no, is this sellable? It's quite interesting that she starts making money from the very beginning, selling kind of yeah. torrid and loaded stories. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. She's yeah. like, oh, well, this is a skill. Whereas Amy is much more concerned with the a hundredth step. You know, she's not really thinking about the process. How do I get better? How do I get there? She's more fixated on how I'm, am I a genius or not? Yeah. I need to decide right now. To use a very basic reference, Amy is the Lennon and Joe is McCartney. Paul McCartney had this thing about, everyone was always saying to him, how do you write genius songs? And he was like, well, you just write and you just keep writing and eventually you get to something that is amazing, right? And that's Joe's style. Like Joe will happily churn out gothic stories for the publisher because he gets her to where she wants to go. And actually, Olcott was more interested in writing gothic short stories than she was about writing Little Women, mm -hmm. ironically enough. And so... Joe is, you're right, just someone who does it for doing the skill that she loves and just wants to get published. And that is the kind of practical way mm -hmm. to be an artist, right? In fact, it's probably the only way to be an artist, most most honestly. But what Gerwig has done, has by because she's in a film, she has to turn that into a heroic quality as well, right? So it's interesting that Little Women in the film and in the story is the culmination of the film, that writing the book itself is the thing that makes her feel fulfilled as an artist, when actually... Olcott didn't care about the book, didn't want to write the book. And it, that's almost the kind of anti-ending, if you sit me. So at mm -hmm. every, every point, this film has to be a film with a Hollywood narrative. And Goeg actually takes the mick out of that a little bit as well. You mind yourself, dearie. Someday you'll need me and you'll wish you had behaved better. 
Thank you, Aunt March, for your employment and your many kindnesses, but I intend to make my own way in the world. Oh, well, no, no one makes their own way. Not really. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, Aunt March. Well, that's because I'm rich. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So you've never seen the 1994 one? I haven't, no. Okay, so you have no other image of the March Sisters aside from this version of Little Women. Uh, and I think they read the book when I was like 16 mm-hmm. years and years ago. So what did you think about the performances and how they play against each other? I mean, we've talked already quite a lot about Joe and Amy, but what about Meg and Beth? And yeah, I mean... Laurie as, and Mammy and everyone else. As an ensemble, it's, it's like a lot of people have described it like a Robert Altman film. And I can see that in that everyone's just shouting over each other. But actually what it is is fundamentally a Greta Gerwig film, right? It feels like Greta Gerwig's performances. In fact, Saoirse Ronan in this feels like Greta Gerwig in, in um, Francis Hull or something like that. The way that she runs around everywhere and throws herself into absolutely everything. Or even like a young Meryl Streep, which is kind of ironic seeing that Meryl's in this one as mm-hmm. well. But yeah, the the kind of gang mentality of the sisters is so beautifully put across in this to the point where the, the scene that really stays with me after watching this film is where Timothy Chalamet as Laurie comes in and he first sees the sisters all together. And he wants to be a part of the gang, right? He doesn't want to, he doesn't actually love them or desire them, really. He just, he wants to be their brother, essentially, and he wants to be part of that family. And I was trying to think of other culture that shows that feeling quite so superbly, that kind of like falling in love with a group dynamic. And the only thing I could think of was the sitcom Friends, quite frankly, like this feeling that there's a gang that an outsider wants to join so painfully but they're never going to be able to be that because they're not part of the family so uh gunther in friends is the closest i came to in lorry (laughs) oh gunther could i get a scone do you want anything i don't know what i want i want a lot of things i want to be with the woman i love on valentine's day and i want just one moment of relief from the gut-wrenching pain of knowing that that's never going to happen we have red bagels (laughs) okay I've, I've got my face in my hands because I cannot believe that you just compared Gunther to Laurie. Well, <laughs> is, you've, what? But you get what I mean. Like he steps in the door and all you can see in his face is his desire not to own them, 
not to make love to them, but to be part of the family and to be part of that connection that they have. First, don't ruin Laurie for me. He's a wholesome <laughs> soft boy. Don't don't put dirty thoughts in we'll Laurie's mind. We'll get onto that in a bit. That's um, a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> However, I love that scene. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, regardless of the of the terrible comparison, I get the sentiment. <laughs> is such a fascinating space because it's not just kind of um, an entirely female space. You know, they let him in. He becomes part of their gang, like their older brother or whatever. But it's a space where they're so natural with each other, where all of the other outside norms, where the fact that they maybe don't have that much money, where their father is at war, where there is hardship everywhere else. But inside that house, the environment is so warm and open and unafraid of letting them be themselves. You know, it's very poignant the fact that they each perform and are so unabashedly themselves when they're together, when they're in that attic, when they're putting on the low plays for the audience of, you know, their family and friends. It's just such an intoxicating thing to witness. And Chalamet's performance in that scene when he sees it for the first time and he's sort of been privileged enough to be allowed into that space is fantastic. He's kind of our audience surrogate. And there's no propriety, right? Like, they, like mm. if, it, It's not like a Pride and Prejudice situation. Yeah. Where Gender the, norms don't apply. Yeah. Either. The Bennett sisters are kind of strung up. And, mm. and they would be because of their time, of course. But like you, you get glimpses of that family being a natural family together, particularly with the father involved, though. And it's, it's much more about the male presence, right? And here, because the father is absent. Mm-hmm. And I can see why someone like Laurie would fall completely head over heels with all of them because potentially for any man going in through that door, it's the first time that they're seeing women being truly themselves. Totally, yeah. As opposed to behaving by the norms of, you know, society and what's been kind of, what's expected of them. I also think it's an American thing. And I think that that there is an element of, I hesitate to say brashness because that's such a stereotype that a British person puts on American culture, but like there is an element of ease that you wouldn't get in British polite society at the time. I think ease and, is a really good word yeah, for and, it. And again, it's a modern take, right? It's Gerwig saying these are women that are individuals and they can act together as a group as sisters and be loving and caring for each other and fight and have problems with each other and... And be really mean and And really horrible. mean to each other and also have a, a, a matriarch figure who, mommy, who is actually seething underneath it all mm-hmm. and is furious with her lot in life and doesn't yeah. want to be there really but loves her kids dearly. So there's a kind of parenting comment there as well. And all of that bundles together into a family that feels absolutely real. Joe, would you like to dance with me? I can't because... Because of what? You won't tell? Never. I scorched my dress, see? There. And Meg told me to keep still so no one would see it. You can laugh if you want to. It's funny, I know. I have an idea of how we can manage. Okay, we've touched on his performance a little bit already, but Timothy Chalamet is in this, and uh, even I know that he's a big deal. But again, like Adam Driver, I'm struggling to work out exactly why. I think he's very good in this film. I don't see why he's a heartthrob. Can you help me out, Anna? I'm trying not to swoon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's two things there. A, I think his performance is beautiful, Mm -hmm. and it's very generous, and the chemistry that he has with Sir Sharonan is so magnetic. You know, we had a little bit of that in Lady Bird, but this is, you know, just cranked up to 11. Mm-hmm. But it's so rooted in friendship. You know, it never really truly feels like they're in love with each other. He certainly is infatuated and in love with her, but at the same time, you can kind of see why that friendship has developed into those feelings. It's kind of but a screwball energy to it. Yeah. It? And they bounce off of each other so well. So... 
And a lot of kind of the way that he falls in love and kind of finds himself through these women, through these young women, is so reflected in his performance. But then there's the whole heartthrob thing. And, you know, the the Chalamet phenomenon is fascinating on a cultural level. There's a really interesting article, actually, about kind of the older female fans of this young actor. And by older, I mean over the age of 30. Wow, that is old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, aside from being wildly talented and like objectively extremely beautiful, the thing about him that I think is kind of fascinating and so intoxicating to a lot of female fans is the fact that he's very non-threatening. Yeah. He is a beautiful, handsome young man, but you never imagine Timothée Chalamet hurting you. Right. Do you know what I mean? Is it he... similar to Leo in his early days as well? Is <sighs> Do you know what I mean? Is he like too pretty yeah. to be in a strange way that he will, he will never hurt you because he's not real because he's so But lovely. it's also that element, you know, of it's that kind of brand of masculinity that does not seem to contain that kind of toxic alpha male venom that sometimes male film stars use to their advantage. Mm. You know, there's the thing, you know, he's never going to be a brute. Give he's, him a few years. <laughs> Stop ruining it. He'll, he'll Leo like Leo did. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, Leo's got a great career. Yeah, he does. Yeah. He does. Um, no, so he's kind of like the perfect, perfect contemporary actor to play Laurie because that's such a non threatening boy, essentially, who matures sort of into a young man, but he's also incredibly privileged and such a soft boy in many ways. He's a spoilt rich boy who's never really found any kind of emotional connection in the world around him because he lives with his granddad and he's like you know he's shut off and he's part of high society and these girls open him up to the feeling of emotion so i think what you're seeing really Mm. from him is first love and again it's not first love for joe really or for amy i think in that sense kind of joe and the other march sisters kind of their energy and their enthusiasm and their ability to be themselves so unabashedly allows him to understand himself a little bit better but at the same time bless him He's so good at getting rejected, isn't he, Timothée, on screen? Still doesn't... He un- just plays rejection beautifully. Still doesn't explain his sexiness to me, but we'll allow it anyway, won't we? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get 100% blasted for this, but I think he's my favourite, Laurie. That's it for this episode. Little Women bounds into cinemas across the UK from Boxing Day and previews at the BFI South Bank on 19th of December before starting its run there early in the new year. The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the BFI, is presented by me and Anna. We're on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna. I'm on Anna B. Demented. Our producer, the eldest, prettiest sister, if you will, is Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back with one final episode for the year in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, your last line, this episode comes from Little Women and is because I'm very tired and Anna's been so nice to me. And it is. I'd rather take coffee than compliments right now. That's such a great line. Also, it's so <laughs> Stop true. Stop with the compliments. I need the coffee. <laughs> yeah. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. 
Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.